Section 33 of The Catholic's Ready Answer. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Twinkle. The Catholic's Ready Answer by Rev. M. P. Hill. Section 33. The Eucharist. The Real Presence. Objection. The Roman Catholic doctrine of the Eucharist cannot be deduced from the words of institution, this is my body, etc., for these words may be understood figuratively or spiritually. The answer. The Catholic doctrine may be proved, directly and indirectly, from the words of institution mentioned above, though this is only one of several ways of demonstrating it. Before presenting any of these proofs, let us briefly state the essential points of Catholic teaching on this subject. The Catholic Church teaches that our Lord Jesus Christ, His body and soul, as well as His divinity, is as truly and as literally present in the Most Holy Eucharist as He is in Heaven. His presence in the Eucharist is not, therefore, a mere spiritual presence, whatever this expression may really and logically mean in the mouths of the Reformers, but also a bodily presence. It is not the presence of the divinity alone, as Zwingli maintained, but also of the humanity. After the words of consecration have been pronounced upon the bread and wine, nothing remains of the bread and wine but the accidents. These are the appearances, or species, consisting of the color, taste, shape, hardness, and other qualities perceptible by the senses. The substance of the bread and wine has been converted into the substances of the body and blood of Christ. The appearances or accidents of bread and wine are preserved without the substance. In this doctrine, the Catholic Church differs from all the churches of the Reform, including the Church of England. The most general teaching of the Protestant denominations is that our Lord is present in the Eucharist only spiritually, and is only spiritually received, and that the words of our Lord, This is my body, are to be interpreted as meaning, This is a symbol or representation of my body. The Lutheran differs from the other evangelical bodies, by teaching that the body of Christ is really and substantially present, but only at the moment of communion, but that even then the substance of the bread remains. The institution of the Blessed Eucharist is narrated by three of the evangelists. St. Matthew, chapter 26, verses 26 through 28, St. Mark, chapter 14, verses 22 through 25, and St. Luke, Chapter 22, verses 19 and 20. It is again described by St. Paul in the first epistle to the Corinthians, chapter 11, verses 23 through 25. St. Matthew's version is as follows. And whilst they were at supper, Jesus took bread, and blessed and broke, and gave it to his disciples, and said, Take ye and eat. This is my body. And taking the chalice, 
he gave thanks and gave to them, saying, Drink ye all of this, for this is my blood of the New Testament, which shall be shed for many unto the remission of sins. In St. Luke's account, after the words, This is my body, which is given for you, are added the words, Do this for a commemoration of me. The same injunction is found in St. Paul in reference to both consecrations. Proofs of the Doctrine of the Real Presence The Catholic Church teaches that the words, This is my body and this is my blood, are to be taken in their most literal sense. Words are to be taken in their plain and literal meaning unless the context in which they are found or the circumstances under which they are uttered require that they be taken figuratively. But there is nothing either in context or in circumstances that argues a figurative meaning in the words under consideration. Therefore, the words, this is my body, etc., must be taken in their literal sense. When the words were uttered, the body and blood of our divine Savior were really, truly, and substantially present. Neither the context nor the circumstances can be shown to contain anything opposed to the Catholic doctrine. They contain, on the contrary, much that favors it, and this we shall endeavor to make clear in the successive stages of the discussion. It will, of course, be urged at once by opponents of the Catholic doctrine that there was one very obvious circumstance connected with the institution which made it natural for the apostles to understand our Lord's words in some figurative or spiritual sense. They saw the Lord's living body before them and knew that his blood was flowing in his veins, and hence, when he took bread and wine and said, this is my body, and this is my blood, they knew his meaning must be figurative or mystical, for otherwise his words would contradict the evidence of their senses. Not so. The apostles were in a frame of mind which positively favored a literal interpretation of the Lord's words. They were already familiar with the idea of a literal partaking of his body and blood as food and drink. There is a well-known passage in the sixth chapter of St. John's Gospel in which the Lord speaks to the people of Capernaum of the eating of his flesh and the drinking of his blood. Those who are not familiar with the chapter would do well to read it from beginning to end. Our Lord was understood literally, though very grossly so, for we are told, The Jews, therefore, strove among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? The issue was clearly one of admitting or not admitting the plain and obvious sense of the words. And it was this issue that divided the believers from the unbelievers on that memorable day. There was a defection even in the ranks of our Lord's declared disciples. Many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Then Jesus said to the twelve, the apostles, who were afterward with him at the Last Supper, Will you also go away? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, 
to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. It was the acceptance of our Lord's words in their plain and literal sense that saved the apostles' faith. The twelve were therefore prepared for a literal fulfillment of his words at the Last Supper. They knew, however, that he had it in his power to give them his body and blood without doing so in the shockingly carnal way imagined by the skeptics of Capernaum. They knew that he who had wrought such wonders during the three years of his public life could give them his sacred humanity beneath the accidents of bread and wine. Furthermore, had our Lord meant to be understood figuratively, he surely would have explained his words to his apostles, who, on most occasions, were only too prone to interpret him literally. If it is true, and we have the word of St. Mark for it, chapter 4, verse 34, that, apart, he explained all things to his disciples, whilst he spoke to others in parables and figures. Surely now, if ever, there was an explanation to be expected, if any was needed. A great Christian rite was being inaugurated, which was in some way intimately associated with the sacred humanity of the Son of God. What the nature of that association was must certainly have been a matter of the first importance. What the apostles saw performed on that occasion, they were to copy and perpetuate in the future worship of the church, was the supposed spiritual or figurative meaning of the words to be a matter of conjecture? Were the words of Christ to be subject to the vagaries of interpretation which mar the Protestant theology of our day? Were we to accept the vague formulas of Anglicanism, which in practice have been made to cover every variety of belief, from that of the real presence of Catholicism to the opposite pole of pure Zwinglianism? Was ours to be the plight of the Calvinists the world over, of whom one school gravitates to the side of Zwingli, whilst the other feels irresistibly drawn to some sort of real presence, to the belief that there is something there more than the empty symbol? Common sense would seem to dictate that if there is anything in the sacrament besides the symbol, it must be the reality as conceived by Catholics and that if the reality is there, it must be adored. The confusion of the Protestant mind on this subject, and the practical issues involved in it, furnish an instructive object lesson on the consequences of a departure from traditional teaching and practice. A no less forcible argument in favor of the Catholic doctrine of the real presence is found in the bearing of the institution of the Eucharist on the inaugurating of the new dispensation. Let the reader reflect on the significance of these words. This is my body of the New Testament, which shall be shed for many unto the remission of sins. Matthew chapter 26, verse 28. Or of these other words from St. Luke. This is the chalice, the New Testament in my blood, which shall be shed for you. Chapter 22, verse 20. Or, finally, of these from St. Paul, 1 Corinthians, chapter 11, verse 25. This chalice is the New Testament in my blood. 
Our Lord here is opening the new era of grace and establishing the new covenant with his people. The words just quoted contain an allusion to a similar inauguration of the old covenant by the great Jewish lawgiver, a type of the Savior of the world. For we are told in the book of Exodus, chapter 24, verse 8, that Moses, after reading to the people the book of the law, took the blood of victims and sprinkled with it the people and the tabernacle, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which the Lord hath made with you. And this inaugural rite of sprinkling with blood was afterward perpetuated in the Jewish religion in many forms, till finally all such types were superseded by their one great antitype. This consummation took place at the Last Supper. This chalice is the New Testament in my blood. Is it possible, then, that the chalice does not contain the blood which is to be the seal of the new covenant? Or at the very moment at which our Lord is announcing the realization of ancient symbols, will he introduce a new symbol, and that too in language so expressive of the reality which had been symbolized? If the apostles believed, as Protestants of today believe, that the contents of the chalice were but a symbol of the blood of the New Testament, they were careful to preserve an unbroken silence about it. For in no apostolic utterance is there any intimation of their understanding our Lord's words in any but their literal meaning. The case is made still stronger by the fact that as many as three evangelists give the same story in almost the same words and without a word of explanation, and that, too, in the Gospels, which were to be in the hands of Christians in all parts of the world. Not even does St. Paul, in a passage in which he warns the Corinthians to fly from the service of idols, first letter, chapter 10, verse 14, say anything in explanation of this supposed figure of speech, although his topic is the Eucharist, the chalice of benediction which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? And the bread which we break, is it not the partaking of the body of the Lord? In a famous passage in the same letter to the Corinthians, chapter 11, verses 23 through 29, the writer admonishes them in words which would lose nearly all their force if our Lord were not present bodily in the Eucharist. After reciting the history of the institution as taught by God himself, though in nearly the same words as the evangelists, he adds, verses 27 through 29, Therefore, whosoever shall eat this bread, or drink the chalice of the Lord unworthily, shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man prove himself, that is, examine and prepare himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of the chalice. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh judgment to himself, not discerning the body of the Lord. Is language like this ever used in reference to mere signs and symbols? Can a mere commemorative or allegorical rite ever furnish a basis for warnings and denunciations 
couched in language so strongly expressive of a real corporeal presence? What would any honest Corinthian do after hearing this passage but strike his breast and acknowledge that in very truth he was guilty of the body and blood of his Lord, which in his levity he failed to discern by faith as really present? But if some reformed friend, if reformed there were in those days, had afterwards succeeded in convincing him that in Paul's mind and in that of the church, the body and blood of Christ were only symbolized in the Eucharist, or that the real presence was only a spiritual real presence, as the Calvinists word it today, he would, at first, probably puzzle over the expression spiritual real presence as applied to a body, and then began to mutter to himself, Paul's language is very strong, very strange, and very misleading. Then, too, he would probably feel that the obligation of proving himself was not of the most stringent kind, as the ceremony, though a religious one, was, after all, no more than the taking of a morsel of bread and a sip of wine. If he were of a thoughtful turn of mind, he would fall to pondering the words, not discerning the body of the Lord. Discerning, seeing clearly, penetrating beyond the veil of appearances, and seeing the reality with the eye of faith, and that reality no less than the body of the Lord. Ah, but I am forgetting. The real body of the Lord is in heaven, at the right hand of the Father, so that all I can discern here is bread and wine. And yet that word discern seems to imply that I must distinguish this bread from other bread. This bread is the body of the Lord, and yet it is only a symbol of the body of the Lord. And so it is confusion worse confounded. Here we have an anticipation by nineteen centuries of the typical Protestant mind. Thus far we find our Lord himself, three evangelists, and in two distinct passages, the apostle of the Gentiles, using the same language, and always without any explanation of its symbolism, if symbolism there be. The argument furnished by the sacred writers is strongly reinforced by the clear and explicit testimony of the early fathers of the church, some of whom were taught by the apostles, others by their immediate disciples. St. Ignatius of Antioch, who lived in the time of the apostles, writes concerning the sect of the Docete that they abstained from the Holy Eucharist and prayer because they do not believe that the Eucharist is the flesh of our Lord Jesus Christ, who suffered for our sins, and whom the Father raised to life again. Epistle to the Smyrnaeans, Chapter 7 If this is heretical doctrine and practice, the opposite must be the doctrine and practice of the true Church of God. And is it possible that the Docete objected to a figurative or spiritual interpretation of our Lord's words? No heretic would be staggered by any such interpretation, which was consequently the right one. St. Justin Martyr, who wrote not many years after the death of St. John the Evangelist, uses the same language in his first apology, 
a vindication of the faith addressed to the Emperor Antoninus Pius in behalf of the Christians. Surely, if the Eucharist could have been explained figuratively or spiritually, the explanation would not have been withheld, as it would have presented a less startling doctrine to the pagan ruler. He says, We do not receive these things as common bread and common drink, but in the same manner as Jesus Christ our Savior, being made incarnate by the word of God, took upon him both flesh and blood for our salvation, so have we been taught that the food which, being transmuted, nourishes our blood and flesh, is, after it has been blessed by the prayer of the word transmitted from him, the flesh and blood of the same Jesus who was made flesh. For the apostles and their commentaries have delivered unto us what they were so commanded to do, when Jesus, having taken bread and having blessed it, said, do this in remembrance of me, this is my body. And in like manner, having taken the chalice and having blessed it, he said, This is my blood. Chapter 26 What impression would these words convey to any reader, pagan or Christian, but that the transformation of the bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ was as real and literal as the Incarnation, or the assuming of human flesh by the Son of God. St. Irenaeus, who was born in the first half of the second century, and who sat at the feet of St. Polycarp, a disciple of the Apostles, writes as follows. Christ declares that the chalice, which is but earthly, is his own precious blood, since then the chalice and the bread, by the word of God, become the Eucharist of the body and blood of Christ, how dare they, the heretics, deny that that flesh which partakes of the flesh and blood of Christ and is a member of him will receive the gift of God, that is, life everlasting. Against the Heresies, Volume 5, Chapter 2 Our limited space forbids us to multiply quotations from the Father's but other valuable testimonies will be found in the article on the sacrifice of the Mass. And, besides, it is generally acknowledged that passages of the kind we have cited abound in the works of the great representative writers of the first five centuries, to say nothing of later testimonies. If we compare this great mass of evidence with a few doubtful utterances of the Fathers, which have been duly exploited by anti-Catholic writers, we are forced to draw the conclusion that Christian antiquity has spoken in favor of the Catholic doctrine in no doubtful accents. It is remarkable with what tenacity, resembling that of a drowning man grasping at straws, the average Protestant controversialist clings to a few passages in the Fathers which at first sight seem to favor his view of the Eucharist. He makes the most strenuous efforts to capture the testimony of one or two fathers who seem to tower above the rest, and meantime shuts his eyes to the foes multiplying about his path. That St. Augustine has been thus singled out is not a matter of surprise. It would be wonder if St. Augustine, who wrote so copiously and with so much originality, 
should not, like Cardinal Newman of our own day, be placed in the witness stand by opposite parties in a dispute. St. Augustine has a passage or two which do lend themselves to a Calvinistic interpretation, if viewed out of relation to their context and to the circumstances in which they were written. But fortunately we can afford to waive all contention about these controverted parts of his writings, for it is easy to find passages in his works which all must acknowledge to admit of but one interpretation, and that the Catholic one. In the following passage, Enar, Psalms, chapter 33, number 10, we challenge anyone to find a meaning different from that conveyed to every Catholic reader. He asks, and his mode of treating the subject, though familiar, is not irreverential, who can hold himself in his own hands? A man may be held in the hands of another, but no man can hold himself in his own hands. He answers, Christ held himself in his own hands when he gave his body to his disciples, saying, This is my body. For that was the body which he held in his own hands. Evidently, he understands body in its literal sense, for had he understood by body a symbol of a body, he could not have asserted that no one but Christ could hold his own body in his hands. Anyone could hold a symbol or representation of his body in his own hands. St. Augustine, therefore, undoubtedly believed that the Holy Eucharist contained, really and literally, the body of Christ. The passages we have cited is but one out of many such passages in the writings of the saint. If we turn from the Fathers to the ancient liturgies, we find a clear expression of the same Christian belief. In the Liturgy of Jerusalem, which in its essential parts dates back to apostolic days, we find the following words, Let us dismiss all worldly thoughts from our minds. For the King of kings, Lord of lords, Christ our God, is about to be sacrificed and to be given to the faithful as their food. And in the Liturgy of St. Basil, a prayer is uttered that God may make of this bread the true and precious body of Jesus Christ, our Lord, God, and Savior, and from this wine his true and precious blood, which was shed for the salvation of the world. Again, these are but samples of much more in the same vein. Add to this the testimony of the Eastern churches, which are not at present in communion with Rome, but which received their Eucharistic doctrine from the early church, when there was no distinction between East and West. One and all, they hold the Roman Catholic doctrine of the real presence. There is no period of the church's history in which the same doctrine is not asserted in language of the most explicit, emphatic, and realistic kind, in language which could never have been the expression of a faith which had robbed the Blessed Sacrament of all but a figurative significance, and had made of the Holy Communion a mere commemorative rite, signifying the death of the Lord, and symbolizing His real presence elsewhere. Moreover, there is a fervidness of utterance, such as appears in the liturgies quoted above, which could never have harmonized 
with the comparatively cold and empty content of Protestant doctrine. Now, the language of Christian antiquity is the language of the Catholic Church of today, and both present a broad contrast with the Eucharistic language of Protestantism. So sacred was the doctrine of the real presence in the eyes of all true Christians just before the advent of Protestantism that the first of the Reformers, Martin Luther, did not presume to deny it in its entirety. He taught his followers that the body and blood of Christ were really and substantially present, but only at the moment of communion, not before or after, though the substance of bread was also present. But the ball of private judgment was set a-rolling, and even this counterfeit of ancient doctrine had to make way for others. Zwingli, the next of the innovators, swept away the real presence of the body and blood in the Eucharist, and taught that only Christ's divinity was present. A strange comment, this, on the words, This is my body, etc. Calvin, the third great innovator, swung back to a real presence. But this, when explained, was found to be a real presence in heaven, whilst on earth there was a dynamic presence of the humanity of Christ. The sun was in the heavens, but its rays were felt on earth. No wonder it has been difficult for Calvinists to discern the body of the Lord. In our time, Calvinism, which includes many types of Protestantism, has been vibrating between this dynamic real presence, doubtless with an uneasy, half-conscious suspicion that it must be more than dynamic, and the Zwinglian real presence. The Zwinglian tendency is combated by the conservative element, and what a surprise it must be to modern Presbyterians to be reminded, as they are by Dr. Briggs, quoting Bishop Davenant, who wrote in 1641 that, All Presbyterian churches are point-blank against all erroneous doctrines of the bare representation of the body and blood of Christ, parted from the true exhibiting of him. Such is the strange language used by those who wish to avoid the symbol and yet are not willing to embrace the reality. The primitive Protestant formulas have not, then, stood the test of time. They are too suggestive of the old real presence, about which men were wont to think and speak the same thing. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. The old real presence, which, as we shall endeavor to show in another article, has nothing repellent about it, but rather everything that is attractive and elevating, is, nevertheless, for the most part, the last of the interpretations of our Lord's words to which doubting Protestants turn, and yet very many of our separated brethren have found in it at last complete satisfaction for mind and heart. End of section 33